as we all head into a three-day weekend, not many of us are thinking about exactly why it is that we celebrate the holiday known as Labor Day. The eight-hour work week, clean and safe conditions, as well as paid vacation and sick leave are all things that you can thank your local union for. The history of labor unions in the United States is a complicated one having both positive and negative impacts on society. As we look forward to the celebration of Labor Day, today we consider some famous cemeteries and how they have impacted the general history of the United States through their role in labor unions. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So, this is my first episode... (laughs) recorded lying down, um, I have somehow managed to injure both of my feet this week, so I have to have them elevated. So this is going to be an interesting one. Um, I may have to pause and readjust myself. I'm doing my best. But the best way to deal with any foot injury is uh, rest, ice, compression, and elevation, all of which I'm trying to do right now. So thank you for coming along on adventures in how I can manage to injure myself. I'm the pretty much the klutziest person alive, so apologies for the weird recording. Um, since I had the idea to even start this podcast, so probably two or three years ago now, this was always one topic that I knew that I wanted to cover. And I was very enthusiastic about because there's some really cool stories to tell. It's something I feel like not a lot of people talk about. But odds are, if you go to just about any larger cemetery, you can probably see evidence of union graves, um, either in the form of markings from fraternal societies or actual plots that are purchased by particular groups. This is one of those that I think transcends. We tend to think of labor unions as being a very urban phenomenon, but there are certainly labor unions for just about everything. And I'm not going to discuss every single one today because there are a few. Um, Some of the more fun ones that I think could be standalone episodes that I'll probably save for later. Today, I want to focus on the big ticket items, Um, some of the really famous examples. Look at how they fit into the larger history of unions in the United States and kind of go from there. So I'm going to start kind of on the cusp of where I think of as you know, the great era of unions begins. And then we're going to go into how cemeteries and a couple in particular play a really significant role in that history. So I actually started my research on this. I knew of a couple of different examples that I right off the bat wanted to discuss, but I went to Emily, um, which if you go back and listen to episodes 23 and 24, if you have not already Um, I go in-depth talking to Emily about the New Orleans cemeteries. And one of the things that categorizes New Orleans cemeteries is their society tombs. 
Now, when we say societies, these are all different types of societies. Some of them are ethnic groups. Some of them are different types of benevolent associations. Some are, some are associated with religions. Many are not. But there also are a large number that are associated with particular groups of individuals, whether it is carriage drivers, whether it is police or fire, whether it is butchers. All of these groups are generally associated with a particular occupation. Now, you can find society tombs everywhere, um, often associated with different religious orders, particularly within the Catholic Church. So whether it's the Sisters of Mercy or the Paulist Fathers, you will find group plots purchased on behalf of them. Um, Not every society grave or society tomb is associated with a union. And that was kind of why I turned to Emily, because I confess that I was a little at loss about where the line is between some sort of organization's tomb and a labor union's tomb. Um, And Emily actually had a really good answer for me. She was saying that you need to look at it in terms of just how the language was used. And language in terms of social change is really important. If I were to talk about a comfort station, today the majority of people don't know what that is. However, in the 1890s, a comfort station was a public restroom. We often have different euphemisms culturally. So think about using the same thing we're using a water closet in the place of a bathroom. The language changes, but often the intent is the same. So perhaps in the 1840s and 1850s, before the great age of labor unions, benevolent societies were people who were working in conjunction to support one another, particularly within a given profession, that might not have had the organized strength of a labor union. So a lot of those kind of feed into one another. And uh, I will talk a little bit about New Orleans uh, more later on. I want to start with the big ticket name. And I think that this one is very interesting, particularly given the level of civil unrest that has happened in the United States over the past couple of months. Because in many ways, the struggle that was going on in Chicago in the 1880s is the same struggle that's going on today. And I'm going to look at two monuments which are on both sides of the aisle. As I'm sure you can probably guess, uh, I am talking about Haymarket. So if you are not familiar, um, in the 1880s, the major struggle for federations um, of organized trade, labor unions of the United States, um, all of these sort of fledgling labor organizations was that the big push was going to be for an eight-hour workday. Now, interestingly enough, in Chicago or in Illinois, a statute had been established in 1868 mandating an eight-hour workday. However, according to the Chicago Knights of Labor, quote, the eight-hour day, as it now stands, is a dead-letter issue. There is not one person in a thousand who knows that there is such a law. So despite the fact that it was state law, virtually no one enforced it. 
And so this became sort of the bedrock of the labor union system that was growing in Chicago at the time. Now, keep in mind, in the late 19th century, Chicago is one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing city in the United States. It is a major hub in the Midwest, being both on Lake Michigan and a confluence for different rail lines. You have massive amounts of industry either going through there or established there, many of which are reliant on large immigrant populations. So what we have is in 1886, a number of these fledgling labor organizations. And it's worth noting that labor organizations at this time, they have a negative aspect because in many cases they are also crossovers in terms of anarchy. So they are very anti-capitalism. And they see the problem being that the industrialists who are running the show, um, and, and I will give like the biggest group which is the International Working People's Association they saw these industrialists as being the main abusers of the system and the main ones who were exploiting working men and they were huge so they were hosting lots of lectures public gatherings um, throughout Chicago and they would have speakers that drew thousands of people often um, and in fact, many of the people that we will discuss in relation to the Haymarket riot and trial are the speakers who are there. So they are the very public face of the labor movement. So all of the work that they did, all of this sort of public education, trying to rally the troops, comes to a head on May 1st, 1886. And they call for a major strike to protest and fight for the reinforcement of the eight-hour workday. So on May 1st, 1886, approximately 300,000 strikers across the United States, including 40,000 in Chicago alone, went on strike for an eight-hour workday. And this all comes to a head at the McCormick Reaper Works. And what had happened there was that there was not only a strike, but they had also been locked out. And McCormick had hired both replacement workers to try to keep things moving and to keep the strikers out as punishment. But they also had hired Pinkerton detectives. Um, if you're not familiar with the Pinkertons, they have, a again, a very complicated history as a, a private law enforcement force. They had helped to break strikes in Chicago before. Um, railroad strikes, streetcar spikes, um, an earlier incident that had happened in McCormick. So the Pinkertons were seen as being, in many cases, strike busters. So what they decided to do was that they were going to head these labor unions off. So over the next couple of days, the strikers are rallying outside. And in many cases, they are going up against not only a full workforce, like 1,500 hired replacement workers, but also 1,000 people from the Pinkerton Detective Agency. So you have a ton of people all gathered together. And this is led by a, name guy, a guy named August Spies, S-P-I-E-S. And... 
he is there making speeches when the replacement workers come out at the end of the day. And what suddenly happens is, is that the police who are outside trying to keep the strikers at bay start to randomly fire into the crowd. And they don't know exactly how many people were killed. Um, it's not called a riot for nothing. But this is sort of where it starts. So at this point, things have been going on for two days. This is May 3rd. And this is when things really start to get intense. And Spies prints out like this pamphlet that goes out and it's entitled Revenge Working Men to Arms. And it says, quote, your master sent out their bloodhounds, the police. They killed six of your brothers at McCormick's this afternoon. They killed the poor wretches because they, like you, have the courage to disobey the supreme will of your bosses. They killed them because they dared to ask for shortening hours of toil. They killed them to show you free American citizens that you must be satisfied and contented with whatever your bosses condescend to allow you or you will be killed. So this is when things really come to a head because this pamphlet calls for people to come together for a meeting. And this meeting happens at the intersection of Randolph and Displain Street and They've called together essentially all of the leaders, including the mayor. Um, Again, you have the police called. You have a huge crowd. It's raining. It's a peaceful gathering for the most part. Um, The mayor leaves. And then towards the end of the meeting, what happens is, is that the police, a group of about 175 police officers descend in so kind of they wait until the end to really crash down and break up the party and they order them to disperse and at the time that this is going to disperse a bomb is thrown into the middle of the crowd at this point the police start to fire and general chaos ensues only one police officer is actually killed by the explosion, and he's pretty famous. Um, he continues to come up. It's, his name is Matthias Deegan. Um, but a total of seven police officers are killed, most of them by friendly fire. Like I said, there was a lot of confusion. And Haymarket kind of descends into this just moment of complete outbreak There's a lot of battling. It's argued that, you know, anarchists are behind this, that this was all orchestrated, that they organized this peaceful protest to try to draw the police in and to kill them. And you have a real battle that goes down because you have the prominent Chicagoans, the ones who have lots of money. So Cyrus McCormick, who owns the McCormick Reaper Works, Philip Armour, George Pullman, Marshall Field, all big names in industry who are employers of thousands of people decide that they are going to get behind the police. So what we have here is the original, you know, man versus the institution. And the institution in this case is the capitalist core. Caught in the crosshairs are a number of people who are loosely associated with one another. They are mostly anarchists, and they are mostly part of the labor union. The majority of them were not even at the meeting. They had already left. 
Um, so Adolf Fisher, who had already left the meeting, George Engel, um, who was a toy maker and very active um, in the eight-hour movement, was not even present at the meeting. Um, Louis Ling, who was an organizer of the Carpenters Union, was present. Uh, Oscar Nieb, who was part of the Chicago Central Labor Union, was there. Um, Rudolf Schnaubelt, um, who would be the one that they accused of throwing the bomb. Um, they never proved it, and it's pretty patently untrue. They are all arrested, including um, Ling's landlord, um, William Siegler. These folks are all arrested, and then there is essentially a kangaroo court put on. So they put on trial for being the organizer of killing police officers at Haymarket. And that's why I say that there, there is definitely a, a core prejudice here. Um, they are definitely holding up the murder of this one particular police officer, Matthias Deegan, as being at the core. Uh, eventually, 10 people are going to be accused of 69 different counts, including murder, um, aiding and abetting, all of those. The jury selection was a joke. The jurors came right out and said, yeah, we are prejudiced. We, do, we think that these people are criminals. And let's put it this way, that the, these men really never had a chance. And so the trial is largely a joke. On August 20th, 1886, they found the defendants guilty of murder, and seven of the ten were sentenced to death by hanging. Uh, Neeb was sentenced to 15 years in prison. It went to the Supreme Court of Illinois. They upheld the conviction. And while there was a temporary stay of execution, an appeal was submitted to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court definitely uses a loophole on this one. Um, they deny to hear the case using a writ of error, which lets the rulings of the lower courts stand. Um, to say that this was general public opinion, I think is no better summed up uh, by this statement uh, from the leader of a large Chicago clothing firm that said, quote, no, I don't consider these people to have been found guilty of any offense, but they must be hanged. I'm not afraid of anarchy. Oh, no. It's the utopian scheme of a very few philanthropic cranks who are amiable with all. But I do consider that the labor movement must be crushed. The Knights of Labor will never dare to create discontent again if these men are hanged. So, not surprisingly... <laughs> We suddenly have a real situation where this is this is martyrdom, a hundred percent, and this is going to become the rallying point. And Spies is quoted as saying, "Quote: I have been indicted on a charge of murder as an accomplice or an accessory. Upon this indictment, I have been convicted. There was no evidence produced by the state to show or even indicate that I had any knowledge of the man who threw the bomb." or that I myself had anything to do with the throwing of the missile. 
if there was no evidence to show that I was legally responsible for the deed, then my conviction and the execution of this sentence is nothing less than willful, malicious, and deliberate murder. Which, 100%, there's no way to slice this. And I think that you'll be very interested to hear how quickly that this is acknowledged. Um, The outpouring of support for them, as argumentative as some of the capitalist scions of the day are, it's very, very clear that you have huge names who are coming out saying that these are essentially good men, that they didn't do anything wrong. However, the governor, um, whose name was Richard Oglesby, he, he took this into consideration, but he also was very fearful of the business community. So you have two groups, both of which have their own level of power, undeniably. But there is a back and forth about which is going to do more ill. So prior to the actual executions, um, Ling dies in his cell um, by suicide. He actually dies the day before the executions are carried out. Um, Whereas Spies, Parsons, Fisher, and Engel are all hung on November 11th. And knowing the controversial nature at their public hangings, there were police, militia, and federal troops all present to handle the crowds. Now, like I said, clearly these are martyrs, and this is something that really is upfront, kind of revealed beforehand. There were a lot of restrictions placed on their funerals, um, so their remains were given to their individual families. So there were processions throughout the streets, um, and they collected the coffins at each of the houses. um, And then as they were passing through the streets, they allowed the funeral, um, but no banners, no flags, no celebratory music of any kind other than funeral dirges was allowed. But close to 200,000 people lined the streets of Chicago to see the Haymarket martyrs taken out. And I say taken out because they had to be taken by train to the small village of Forest Park, Illinois, which is about 10 miles um, west of the city of Chicago, out in the western suburbs. And they were taken there because this was the only cemetery that would agree to bury them. Now, the cemetery in question is, depending on where you look, it's either called German Waldheim or Forest Home. Now, Forest Home is actually the translation, if you translate the word Waldheim into English, that's what it means. Um, And Waldheim is, it's an interesting cemetery in general. So the cemetery had been founded roughly a decade earlier. It was incorporated on March 13th, 1875. And it was originally two cemeteries, which later incorporated together um, about a year later. Um, Interestingly enough, they have separated again, which happened in the 1980s. There were kind of like two distinct sections. But this is an interesting cemetery for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's one of what I call the mound cemeteries, which are very prominent throughout the middle part of the United States, the area that was originally inhabited by the mound builders, um, where often cemeteries would be built on the same location as historic Indian mounds. 
And this is something that I want to do a full episode on, but it's worth noting that this was originally a burial mound that eventually was turned into a cemetery. From the time it was incorporated, there was a strict policy that they did not discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, or politics in terms of who they allowed to be buried there. So this was sort of the ideal location because many places were fearful about negative comeback should they choose to have these supposed anarchists and dissenters buried there. Of course, the most interesting thing is the fact that in doing this, this marks the cemetery as the center of what is going to be an ongoing and continuing labor movement in the United States. So it's a very, very significant changes. And what happens is, is that the martyrs themselves are buried beneath the monument. And now there is actually surrounding the monument what is called the dissenters' graves. So people would eventually choose to be buried in proximity to the monument next to the people that they saw as their martyrs and leaders, um, often cremated remains. So it's a very striking statue. Um, the sculptor was a German-American by the name of Albert Weinert, um, born in 1863, died in 1947. Um, he had immigrated to the United States the same year that the martyrs died in 1886. Um, or excuse me, not the year that the martyrs died, the same year that the Haymarket occurred. Um, classically trained sculpture. Um, so the center part of the monument is a 16-foot granite shaft, and it's over a base, and it's like a two-part base. And the base has two figures. The first is an allegorical female, and then the second is a bearded male worker. Um, the year 1887 is inscribed, which is the year that they died. There's a bronze palm below it. Um, if you remember from the symbolism episode, um, palms obviously have a lot of inherent Christian meaning, particularly in terms of martyrdom. Think Christ and Palm Sunday, um, his triumphant arrival in Jerusalem. Um, and the inscription on this is something that was attributed to August Spies, um, which actually is going to be part of the title for this episode so I will get to that in just a second um I think that the most interesting thing about this is is that in 1893 then governor Peter Altgeld Altgelds actually grants a pardon and says, quote, these charges are of a personal character, and while they seem to be sustained by the record of the trial and the papers before me, and tend to show that the trial was not fair. I do not care to discuss the features of the case any further because it is not necessary. I am convinced that it is clearly my duty to act in this case for the reasons already given, and I therefore grant pardon to Samuel Fielden, Oscar Nieb, and Michael Schwab on this 26th day of June, 1893. So I'll just give you a contrast. So for the Salem witch trials, which happened in the 1690s, it took almost a full 300 years 
for the governor of Massachusetts to issue a pardon for witchcraft trials. Clearly, secularism took over long before that, and we realized that Puritan accusations of witchcraft were nonsense. So this just goes to show the power of the labor movement and how strong the tale of these martyrs impacted and really expressed the growing dissent in the country. And I really like this description that says, quote, the bronze figures of the monuments are facing eastward, evoking the dawning of a new and more hopeful day. The woman stands assertively with a hooded head yet stern gaze, dressed in a smock and an apron. Her sleeves are rolled up and in her right hand she holds up her cape while her cloak billows out behind her. With her right foot extending off the pedestal, she is given the appearance of walking out of the sculpture. And in her left hand, she grasps a laurel wreath, which she holds over her head of the other figure. The worker is in a reclining position behind the woman, with his head thrown back resting upon a pillow. With one hand open facing up and the other still clenched in a fist, the overall nature and position of the body suggests the horrors of death by hanging. Now, it's also worthwhile to note that this is not only a very powerful sculpture, but it's right there. It's right next to the main entrance, so it's sort of unavoidable. And this is why that kind of open grassy area around it becomes a location for dissenters and anarchists who want to be buried next to this really significant piece of both architectural and United States history. I think that this is interesting on so many different levels. Because at the same time that the pardon happens, this is the same time when this is actually dedicated. Um, they are making a shrine to sort of show that they have triumphed. So that in the less than 10 years that have occurred between the execution and the dedication of this monument, they have really broken free and at this point um you know keep in mind that three of the martyrs were never executed and were still in prison so they are using this as sort of a starting point to continue the battle and using this monument as a way to rally people And it says here that the, quote, Haymarket Monument, according to its promoters, would embody the beliefs of the martyrs and serve as a visual reminder of the tragedy of their deaths. On the flip side, and this is kind of like where I want to end this, because, I, again, I think that we can tie this to modern events. So, in 1899, the Chicago Police Department also erected a Haymarket Monument in Haymarket Square. It's a nine-foot statue of a Chicago policeman. Um, it was also created by a German, um, in this case, Johannes Gellert. The Union League Club of Chicago was the one that funded it. And it was unveiled by the son of, you guessed it, Officer Matthias Deegan. Now, this to me, and you can see, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a policeman with one hand extended. It's a very powerful, traditional monument. Very different from the Haymarket monu Martyrs Monument. Interestingly enough, um, the statue is kind of inadvertently destroyed. 
during uh, like an accident in the 20s when a streetcar runs into it um they restore it the next year and they move it to union park and then the construction in the 1950s of the candy expressway um destroyed much of the original square so you know this is just remaking urban renewal happening at that particular point now this statue again becomes a point of dissension in the late 60s during the protests of the Vietnam War, which I think is really interesting. Um, because the statue, it turns out, is actually destroyed by a bomb. Um, so depending on how familiar you are with like kind of like the counterculture, um, the Weather Underground, also known as the Weatherman, were like a radical branch of the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, they take responsibility for this. So I think it's so interesting that like the major dissenting group at this point, you know, 85 years after the original Haymarket, continues to fight the same battle in a different way. So I think that's, I don't know, a very interesting and ironic twist of fate. Um, they do rebuild it. Um, the mayor at this point, Mayor Daly, um, infamous in his own right in Chicago, has a 24-hour guard put on it. It shuffles around, um, but this particular statue is still around. It was eventually moved to Chicago Police Headquarters. Um, and interestingly enough, in 2000, it was rededicated um, by Geraldine Dosica, who, you guessed it, is the great-granddaughter of Officer Matthias Deegan. So in the same way that you have this core group of Haymarket martyrs, the Chicago Police Department clearly has chosen their own martyr in the face of this one particular police officer who was killed by the bomb. And you could argue that this is a, there's two sides to every story, but I think it's very clear here that the Haymarket martyrs were just that. They were martyrs. And that in this case, it was an example of police brutality, which while Officer Deegan probably should not have been killed if that bomb had not been thrown, it certainly was not organized. And the men who were executed for these crimes were clearly independent of any of this. They may have been involved in the labor struggles, but they certainly were not trying to kill anyone. Let's move on, because there are a number of these particular riots, and I want to speak to this fact because Illinois is really the, the, the core of this, and that's why I'm going to focus most of my attention on Illinois today. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about Mother Jones. Um, so Mother Jones looks like everybody's Irish grandma. <laughs> if you see pictures of her, um, she is very interesting. She was a school teacher and a dressmaker, um, a widow whose four small children all died um, very young. She, this sort of prompted her after their death from yellow fever in the 1860s to become a labor organizer. That and something else which happens she lived in Chicago as well, the Chicago Fire of 1871. So after the Great Chicago Fire, her dress shop is destroyed. And, you know, being a widow with no family, she looks to try to do some good in the world. And she is a major organizer for the Knights of Labor, which I talked a little bit about just a minute ago. 
um, as well as the United Mine Workers. And mine workers are really her core group. She does a lot of work for, you know, child labor, um, sweatshops and things like that. But at her core, the miners are really the ones who she works with the most. She generally refers to miners as her boys. Um, she definitely takes on this persona as sort of a sweet older lady. And Mother Jones, I think, for a lot of women has been a controversial figure um, because she was kind of against women's suffrage at a time when many women chose to put all of their energy into that. Um, she's famously quoted saying, you know, you don't need to vote to raise hell. There was a certainly a great amount of fear and respect because I think that people saw her as this motherly figure. They didn't necessarily see her as threatening. And they would argue that, you know, she could walk into a room and suddenly all of the men, you know, 20,000 men would put down their tools and walk out after her because she inspired them in a way that, like, she seemed like a very safe option. She didn't look like an anarchist. She didn't have this kind of negative appeal. Mother Jones, I bring her up because she is very closely associated with another famous Illinois incident. And this is either, it's either called a riot or a battle, depending on who you talk to. And this is um, Verdun, Illinois, or Verdun, um, which occurred on October 12th, 1898, um, which is generally known as Coal Miners Day. And at this point, you have a group of miners in southern Illinois who call out the big Chicago coal barons. And in this riot, seven miners were killed. This is going to start a landslide of a number of other similar riots, which will occur in 1898 and 1899, that are going to start breaking the control of these sort of huge monopolies that they have on coal. The union movement at this point, it grew in sort of leaps and bounds between different industries. Not everybody unionized at the same time. But a historic report by the U.S. Coal Commission from the 1920s says that conditions prior to the union movement in 1896 was on a ruinously competitive basis. Profit was the sole object. The life and death of employees was of no moment. Men worked in water halfway to their knees, in gas-filled rooms, in unventilated mines where air was so foul that no man could work long without seriously impairing his health. There was no workman's compensation, and accidents were frequent. The average wage of a miner was between $1.25 and $2. Miners not only lived and worked in deplorable conditions, they were also subjected to the whims of the market often out of work for the long summer months, forced to migrate for poorly paid day labor. Displaced and unorganized miners faced conditions of extreme vulnerability. They often lived in company-owned houses, held in debt, compelled to patronize company-owned stores, and were paid in company script. If you're familiar with any kind of mining history, and I feel like mining history is, is what most people think of when they think of unions, um, if you have seen any movement, movie ever made about miners, um, yeah, you know, whether it's something very popular like uh, Coal Miner's Daughter or October Sky or Matewan, if you go the more independent film route, 
um, they all kind of go into this same issue about the monopolies of coal countries. And so there were slow inroads and the United Mine Workers called for a general strike in 1897. Um, However, in Illinois, there was still a very anti-union movement at this point. Now, keep in mind, this is four years after the pardon of the Haymarket martyrs. So in Illinois, we're still trying to get unionized. And there's a leader in southern Illinois um, by the name of General Alexander Bradley, and he was sort of a veteran who was going to try to lead the miners in southern Illinois. And what happens is, is that he grows the union ranks in 1897 from 400 to over 30,000. And they are pushing for a couple of different things. So an eight-hour workday, a a six-day work week, and then they are fighting for individual concessions regarding better working conditions, a 30% increase in raises. So suddenly they are a very, very threatening force to be reckoned with and people are nervous because they are afraid that this could mean a huge hit to profits they are working within a a very unique group remember i said that many immigrants were attracted to these jobs in particular um there was a challenge in terms of one particular race and The big issue here is that while they were very successful with lots of non-English speakers, there was still a big divide between white and black workers. So when Bradley leads workers on strike to try to get these jobs, what they decide to do is that they go south to Birmingham, Alabama, and they hire black coal miners from Birmingham, Alabama to come north to Illinois to break the strike, seeing that the racial tensions and the history of, you know, just underlying prejudice was going to work in their favor. Now, in their defense, these black laborers that they hired had no idea. They were told that they were going to replace people who had gone to fight in the Spanish-American War, which of course was patently untrue. So what they did was on October 12, 1898, they arrive to an armed stockade set up outside the train station in this town in Verdun, um, and there's a shootout. It only lasts 10 minutes. It's very brief. Um, and the company gunmen overpower the strikers, um, and when they return fire, Things really are not good. Um, In the ensuing battle, 12 men are killed. Um, Of these, seven were miners, five were guards. So it's essentially almost equal between the miners and the guards from the company. Um, 40 were wounded, um, and none of the strike breakers were wounded. And at this point, they call in the National Guard, which arrives a few hours later. And... This is a real mess for everybody involved. It's a mess for the companies. It's a mess for the strikers. It's a mess for the government because the governor is seen as not having taken action. He is seen as 
you know, kind of a, an inherent problem. This is interesting because, like I said, this is going to be the beginning of a landslide of similar protests that happen over time. Um, Panna, Carterville, there's a number, I think three or four more of these that occur with them. The interesting thing is, is that eventually you will see a racial switch here. And all this kind of gets filtered in, but... I digress. So that gives you a little bit of the history of what happened here, just to give you an idea of how this kind of ongoing struggle continues. And in this particular case, Mother Jones obviously gets involved. And Mother Jones is an interesting character because she sees herself as being very kindred of these. And as a result, she chooses to be buried with these workers. So the workers are eventually buried in what is called the Union Minor Cemetery, which is in Mount Olive, Illinois. And the victims who are buried there, um, including um, Bradley, who will eventually be buried there, it becomes a central rallying point. And Mother Jones is invited there for one of the memorials that's held every year on Miner's Day on October 12th. And she decides that she wants to be buried along with them. Which I think is fascinating because obviously there are lots of places that she could choose to be buried. I think that she felt the closest to the miners and she chose this. Um, if you search the cemetery now, she is the one that is very much, you know, the most visible. So she writes on November 12th, 1923, a special request to the miners of Mount Olive, Illinois. When the last call comes for me to take my final rest, Will the miners see that I get a resting place in the same clay that shelters the miners who gave up their lives on the hills of Verdun, Illinois, in the morning of October 12, 1897, for their heroic sacrifice for their fellow man? They are responsible for Illinois being the best organized labor state in America. I hope it will be my consolation when I come to pass away. I feel I sleep under the clay with those brave boys. So there's an interesting commonality here um, because obviously they are not the only ones buried there and they continue to have um, burials there, which occur pretty regularly. Um, the money for her monument was actually raised um, mainly during the Great Depression um, she dies in 1930, I believe. So at that point, you have labor unions, but everyone is suffering. And so through very small donations, they raise money. There is a large um, Minnesota pink granite column in the center, um, which is flanked by two bronze figures who are, of course, workers. They are miners um, commemorating her. Now, you might note that I promised a talk on union graves. And these, in fact, are not union graves. Now, I want to kind of wrap up this particular part um, by breaking down a couple of different ways. So these are labor union history graves. Now, in this case, the 
Mount Olive Cemetery, the workers' union cemetery where she is buried, is a union cemetery. It is meant for those in the miners' union. And there's a couple of different ways that this happens. So often a union will either have a way for you as a union member to invest through your union dues in a place to be buried. Or in some cases, they as the union, you know, because they have a certain pool of money that they get from dues, will purchase the land and then you don't, you're not guaranteed free burial there, but you are guaranteed less expensive burial. And these actually kind of are at the very start of labor unions. Um, this happens in a number of different circumstances, like across the United States, where you see these kind of original, not benevolent societies, but, you know, it, it's like a very delicate balance. So, for example, the Union Burial Ground, which was in Philadelphia um, at the corner of 6th and Federal Streets in South Philly, was incorporated in 1841 as a, quote, association cemetery. These catered to the poorer members of the city. And if they were part of this particular association, they could obtain a decent family plot. So family plot for multiple burials for $10. There were several of these in cities like Philadelphia, and you could find these across the United States in New York and L.A. and San Francisco, things like that. Um, unfortunately, in 1970, um, this particular cemetery was removed. Um, it's now, all of these were reinterred at the Philadelphia Memorial Park, which is in Fraser, which is in Chester County. Um, so it's a double-edged sword. These original association, like pre-union cemeteries often get gobbled up because the organizations that started them don't have a lot of money and they are meant to be affordable options to begin with. In other cases, you have like helping like. And this is going back to what I was discussing with Emily earlier about the difference between some of these benevolent associations and some of these organizations that had society tombs. I think that many of those were founded on the same principles where, you know, if you are a coachman or if you are a butcher, you are going to help the people that you work with. You might not at this point have the means to unionize. You might not be paying dues. You might not be fighting for something in particular, but it's one of these instances where like helps like. And so if they are looking for a particular solution, whether it's a burial solution in a place like New Orleans, which already has very particular burial traditions, they are going to work together, which... I started to do research on a couple of those, and I, I know I teased it a little bit, but I think that that could probably be its own episode. Um, so I'm going to work on that, and there's a couple of really good stories there that I think I'm going to save. Often, you will get plots purchased on a number of different um, sides. So we've talked about fraternal organizations, things like Masons, things like Oddfellows, um, all of those very commonly either will have a whole cemetery themselves or a plot. Um, one which I did not expect that is actually very common that has a plot is the Salvation Army. And there is actually one of those right here in Atlanta at Westview Cemetery. Um, there's a whole Salvation Army section. Um, not surprisingly, this is not something that's covered frequently. 
um, in basically anything that I could find. Um, the only book that I could find among my particular collection is Silent Cities, The Evolution of the American Cemetery, which is by Kenneth T. Jackson. And I like this book because this book covers a lot of topics that don't get a lot of attention elsewhere. And he brings up um, a lot of the same ones that I talked about. Um, so different Catholic organizations, fraternal organizations, um, again, things like the, the Elks. Elks are another one that is very common that you see quite a bit. Often these are groups too that for whatever reason might be disenfranchised. So you see lots of old seamen's associations for retired sailors. Um, I don't know if it's because like people who chose that life tended to not have, you know, families to take care of them towards the end. Cause you also see like old seamen's homes, um, were very common at certain points in history. Um, you know, generally those are like merchant sailors and it was seen as an alternative to burial in a potter's field, which is where most of these people would end up otherwise. You do have a lot of groups that are not necessarily unionized, whether it's police or fire, that they have benevolent associations that start things. These are a mix. Um, some of these are very cool, particularly the firefighters ones. You'll see some that have, you know, actual hydrant-shaped fences and things like that. There, there are some very, very interesting ones. Um... I don't know where you draw the line with all of these. What I think is most important to remember is that it's a very fraternal idea in the way that guilds were in the Middle Ages. That a group of people with a common interest, whether it is a career, in most cases that's where it's going to be founded, or something else, they are building something that's common. I think that there's something to be said, too, for the fact that it becomes larger than the individuals who are buried there. It speaks to a particular culture of the time. So think about, you know, something like a tomb dedicated to butchers or to carriage men. These are careers that, while they do technically still exist, they capture a very particular snapshot at a particular point in history. Um, the same can be true. One of the most highly organized groups that you do tend to see a lot of dedicated plots to is railroad workers. And so, for example, the employees of the Lake Erie and Western Railroad have raised a fund for the purchase of ground for a cemetery for the interment of dead railroaders whose bodies are not claimed by friends. Funds have been raised to defray funeral expenses. Park and Cemetery reported in December of 1898. So these organizations, which again, railroad workers, not a new concept, but also, you know, the golden ages of railroads is long over at this point. So these type of plots, these type of tombs, they can give us a little window into aspects of the past, which have largely been lost in every other aspect of society. So to conclude, what I wanted to talk about was 
you know, I kind of hinted at a bunch of different groups, but surprisingly, the most common and I think arguably the most widespread group in terms of a union that has dedicated graves, you might be very surprised. And I know I certainly was. So not long after I moved to Atlanta, I stumbled across one of these union graves. And I was frankly very surprised. It was not something that I necessarily anticipated to find. Um, It was actually at Greenview Cemetery, or excuse me, Greenwood Cemetery here in Atlanta, which I've talked extensively about Greenwood um, in the episode on the Memorial to the Six Million last January. But I stumbled across a plot for the International Typographical Union. Again, not what you would expect. Not necessarily what you think about when you think about labor unions. You know, you think about the Teamsters. You think about big industries, things like coal mining, et cetera, et cetera. But what you might not know is that the International Typographical Union, founded on May 3rd, 1852, is actually the longest-running union in the history of the United States. Like many of the things I just discussed, obviously with mechanization over time, it had less and less power. Um, By the time it was disbanded, um, which I think technically the disbanding date is 1994, but the union itself merged with the Teamsters in 1986. So I would really say that 1986 is kind of the end date. 130 years is pretty significant for any trade union. But they were very important on a number of different levels about organizing people who did related but not necessarily identical things. They were very significant because they were one of the first unions that admitted female members starting in 1869. So this is really important because... It's also a union of skilled labor in a different sense than other fields. So these people were generally educated. They were literate. They were economically mobile, and they often worked in major city centers. Um, And they also, because they worked for newspapers for the most part, were able to really influence how the public saw their cause. They could get word out there. Um, So they started by winning a 48-hour work week for their union in 1897. Again, big year from what we've talked about. And then going into the 1930s, they were very successful in negotiating that down to 40 and doing it in a way that made people feel really comfortable at the height of the Great Depression. Now, when the International Typographical Union was founded... There were a number of initial chapters, which eventually grew to hundreds. So the number one chapter is in Indianapolis. Number two was in Philadelphia. Three was in Cincinnati. Four was in Albany. Five was in Columbus. Six was in New York, surprisingly. Seven, Pittsburgh. Eight, St. Louis. Nine, Buffalo. Ten, Louisville. Eleven, Memphis. Twelve, Baltimore. Thirteen, Boston. Fourteen, Harrisburg. 15, Rochester, 16, Chicago, 17, New Orleans, 18, Detroit, 19, Elmira, New York, 
20 Nashville, and 21 San Francisco. So those were the original charter members from 1852, and obviously just continued to grow from there. Now, in 1890, I found a publication that talks about the practices of the International Typographical Union. It says, quote, for the past eight years, the printers have been regularly contributing towards a burial fund. On the death of a member in good standing, in a subordinate union, an order is drawn on the international union for the sum of $60, except in the case of feeders and bindery girls when the draft is $45 to go towards the burial expenses of the deceased. The order must be honored promptly. Before this fund was created, the death of a member was recognized only by the passage of resolutions of condolence, and sometimes by the attendance at the funeral, in a body of the fellow workmen of the deceased. Occasionally, however, subordinate unions levied special assessments on their members for the attendant expenses, and not a few purchased burial lots. In times of special distress, a fund was raised, and members of one union were often generously aided by those of several others. Since the burial fund has been established, a careful record of the causes of death has been kept. It goes to show that one half of the total deaths per year have been due to consumption and kindred diseases to which printers are peculiarly exposed from the natures of their occupations. So there's a lot to unpack there, but it starts with, you know, general practice where they are raising funds that they contribute towards the general union, which are paid out upon the death of a member. But I think it's interesting that they take this a step further and they go to starting to purchase burial lots for individual chapters. And then thirdly, they are doing very close record keeping to see what is the thing that is putting them at risk. And so obviously tuberculosis, I have talked extensively about this. You can go back uh, and listen to last year's Halloween episode about it. You know, tuberculosis is a huge killer in the 19th century, so in the 1890s it's not surprising that half of their members were dying, but they also talk about conditions and how the conditions under which they're working may contribute to that. You have poor ventilation, things like that. This is really progressive and really, really interesting. And not surprisingly, this is one of the reasons that this really highly organized union is the most visible in cemeteries across the United States. If you come across a union grave, odds are it is going to be for the International Typographical Union. Here in Atlanta, we have two, one at Oakland Cemetery, and as I said, one at Greenwood Cemetery. And just a quick search will bring up pictures of most of them. So Indianapolis, where it was originally founded, you can find the Indianapolis chapter number one burial at Crown Hill Cemetery. Chicago, the number 16 chapter, can be found at Elmwood Park Cemetery in River Grove, Illinois. Um, that has 425 graves. That's a huge plot. Dating from 1900, when the monument was founded, all the way up to 1974. So that's fairly contemporary. Um, that one also has a really nice World War I memorial, which marks the graves of the 15 members of the chapter who died in World War I, 13 journeymen, and two apprentices. Cleveland at Woodland Cemetery, you can see the number 53 marker. In Des Moines, Iowa, also at Woodland Cemetery, Woodland Cemetery 
you can see the number 18 chapter and you will see so this report was in 19, 1890 the report that I read you almost all of these are founded at the turn of the century so around 1900 or slightly afterwards so 1900 to 1910 the number 92 chapter in Little Rock Arkansas can be found at Oakland Fraternal Cemetery the number 209 chapter and you can see that as time goes on they start to get more and more chapters uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, can be found at Wayuka Cemetery. Los Angeles, the number 174 chapter, founded in 1911 at Rosedale Cemetery. And it goes on and on and on and on. Again, when we think about labor unions, we don't generally think about, you know, people who run printing presses. The other really interesting thing is, is again, if you do a quick search, you can find these. They are not identical in design. They are very widely varied. There was not a standard design. The International Typographical Union symbol is kind of like a man standing in a printing press. So you do see different variations. Like the LA chapter has a beautiful bronze, you know, symbol on it. Um, the one in Atlanta, there's nothing on the big monument, but on the individual graves, you can see the printing press. Um, I definitely have some pictures that I can post of this. But I think it's so interesting that they were able to express themselves in so many different ways and that in this organized union memorial underlying is also the long-term goal of improving conditions and lives of workers, which at the end of the day is the point of labor unions. Uh, obviously, I think that they probably go off the rails a little bit and labor unions today certainly do not look like what they were in the 19th century. But hopefully a glimpse at Mother Jones and Haymarket gives you an idea of where this started and how cemeteries, in this case, were one of the few places that you could rally behind these, you know, not mainstream ideas, but things which would become rallying points to push the movement forward. As always, thank you so much for your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify etc, etc. Um, please do rate. Um, it helps me become much more visible. Uh, I have been very lucky. I've been getting lots of new follows on social media, so I do appreciate that. Um, I've been posting some really fun stuff this week, so hopefully you had a chance to check that out. Um, going forward, next week, um, not by actual numbers, because I did take two weeks off when I had my surgery earlier this year, but uh, in actual calendar years, uh, next week is going to be the one-year anniversary. So I think that I'm probably going to do something fun, probably on Instagram, because that's where I have the most followers, um, where I might do an Ask Me Anything segment. Um, and I think I'll have something fun for you next week for that first anniversary. As always, you can follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook, Tomb period with period A period view on Instagram. If you need to get a hold of me, you can always email me at tomboftheviewpodcast at gmail.com. Still trying to get my problems with the website straightened out, so unfortunately nothing new posted on there for now. But at some point in the near future, hopefully that will happen. I hope everyone has a wonderful three-day weekend. Uh, enjoy your Labor Day and appreciate everybody who fought hard to get it for you. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.